politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, to the Conservative Review podcast. Yes, patriots, peace-loving taxpayers, you actually matter to someone, um, and this is your show. Because if you haven't committed a felony, if you're not an illegal alien, you should matter, even though you don't matter to many of the political elites. Now, I was just in Manhattan last night at a speaking engagement, so I trashed my voice talking when I already have a cold. So we're going to have a special guest today. Um, Just to frame this issue, we're going to put up on the screen here, I want you guys to see in City Journal, this is a publication of the Manhattan Institute, Heather McDonald has an unbelievable article on the homeless situation in San Francisco. So I want you guys to read that article um, as you go through this show, because one of the things we've done the last several years is really tied together a number of elements the growing crime wave in many parts of the country, particularly in California, sanctuaries, the border, gangs, drugs, how it all ties in. You know, the more sanctuaries you have, the weak on drug and weak on crime policies, you're going to have more drugs. But there's another dimension to this that we, we really haven't touched on a lot. I haven't really done any writing on it, and that's the homeless problem. Now, it's been around for a while. It's been around maybe 30, 40 years or so. But in some areas, particularly on the West Coast, it sure seems to be getting worse. Um, According to San Francisco City data, it looks like they've had a 17% increase in homelessness over the last two years. What is behind this? Where is it coming from? Why does it seem to be getting worse? And what do we do about it? So with us today, we're going to bring on Heather McDonald. Um, To you guys, I mean, most of you guys know who she is because she's one of the few people fighting for the rule of law and law enforcement. But for those of you who don't know, she is a Thomas W. Smith fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Um, She's a contributing editor to City Journal. And she also wrote some important books. Um, The one I read was The War on Cops. I actually have it right here, and I wish I, I would have had it in the background here. But maybe while Heather's talking, I'll go show it to you guys. Um, And her most recent book is The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Uh, She got her JD from Stanford University Law School. Um, Most importantly, uh, at a a conference last year, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, a friend of mine, real uh, friend of law enforcement, called Heather the greatest thinker on criminal justice in America today. Uh, Heather, it's a it's a, really an honor to bring you in today. And my only regret is I don't know why I haven't had you on sooner after talking about this issue for four years. <laughs> well, Daniel, you know, Sessions made that remark. I was in the room. Had you been in the room, I think he would have understood the proper hierarchy of, of insight on criminal justice and as well as effectiveness. But it, this is a real honor. And you I've been on because you've had lots of great guests. And so I'm, I'm pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on with you now. Well, there aren't too many people. Um, you could probably fit us all in a phone book. Those of us who still believe in broken windows policing and caring more about the victim of crime, law enforcement. Um, but I wanted to jump straight into this homelessness problem. Um, to be honest, I'm now, and I'm a little bit embarrassed. I haven't even. It's not even been on my radar until fairly recently. This issue. It's it's getting bad in some areas on the East Coast where we are, but it's not quite as bad as in the West Coast, I saw recently 
very recently, the California Chamber of Commerce put out a poll, and they said Californian voters are anxious. 79% of Californians agree that homelessness and criminal behavior have become rampant throughout California. 73% agree that street crime, shoplifting, and car theft have become rampant throughout California. And 60% say, I no longer feel safe because of the danger and disorder in society today. What's going on in the Golden State? Maximal tolerance for dysfunctional antisocial behavior. Uh, you know, you, you rightly connect, Daniel, the uh, sanctuary city movement as well as homelessness. They are united at least on one point, which is the unwillingness of society's mainstream elites at this point to enforce basic norms of behavior, whether it's obedience to our immigration law and respect for the national sovereignty or uh, norms around public behavior in cities. So it used to be totally non-controversial 50, 60 years ago, much less 100 years ago, that nobody has a right to colonize city sidewalks, to defecate in public, to urinate in public, to use drugs, to toss needles in front of schoolyards, uh, in front of people's homes. Uh, and the police responded appropriately to such behavior, which was to move people along. Now, uh, driven, I think, overwhelmingly by the concept of, of disparate impact and how any kind of rule or law enforcement inevitably dis disparately impacts so-called underrepresented minorities in our culture, the elites have simply backed off of enforcement. Now, I think you have been a little bit asleep, Daniel, to be perfectly honest, because homelessness has been a huge problem uh, since the 90s, and not just in California, uh, but on the East Coast. But Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani, the great Rudolph Giuliani, who was the uh, elected mayor in 1994 when New Yorkers got absolutely fed up with the street chaos and crime in New York City uh, that had a huge component of unorderly, disorderly, uncivil, homeless, vagrant behavior. Uh, they threw aside their self-righteous progressive aspirations and elected, God forbid, a Republican who enforced the law and it turns out that enforcement works. He made a big dent in the homeless problem and a big dent in the crime problem. That is not going on in California. And now when you have a, a set of laws that are part of something that you've been following closely, Daniel, and covering, mm -hmm. which is decriminalization and de-incarceration, uh, the police have no incentive to enforce norms around public behavior. And that acts as a magnet. People are drawn across the country to these West Coast cities, whether it's San Francisco or Los Angeles, because they know they can party with impunity. Party with impunity. So that that's a very interesting thing I learned from reading your article. So obviously, if you talk to the left, they will say, oh, you know, it's too hard to find housing. These people have no fault of their own or out on the streets, so we need more programs. Um, but what you targeted, and you mentioned this a little bit now, is, quote, the combination of maximal tolerance for antisocial behavior on the one hand and free services and food on the other acts as a magnet. So you say from your trip that you took down to San Francisco, um, did you dress up as a as a homeless person? You went undercover? No, I just talked to people. I bought drugs completely as myself. Uh, the the <laughs> drug dealing on the part of the illegal Honduran drug dealers is so flagrant there. 
I wanted to test what is their threshold of suspicion uh, since I don't look really, I don't think, like your average junkie, but I've scored a very good deal, uh, all cash transaction, and um, there was not a chance of enforcement. So I, I find generally with reporting, people are more than happy to talk. And, you know, what you discover is uh, this is, it's driven, as I say, by the failure on the elite's part to enforce basic norms and simply say, this is not allowable, period. I mean, that's how you stop it. You stop it very easily. You say, you can't do this. But the, the supply side is uh, this country's unbelievable drug addiction problem. There is something going wrong with American culture and has been so for decades that so many people are involved in drugs that you combine that with mental illness, which is also very prevalent among the street vagrant population, and uh, you get a very elevated risk of violence. The mentally ill, the received wisdom is, is that generally they do not have higher rates of violence. But when you couple mental illness with, with substance drugs. abuse, the, oh, the violence goes up exponentially. So we are putting law-abiding citizens' safety at risk by tolerating a behavior that simply has no place on, on city streets. Oh, man, I, I saw an article recently actually speaking to that in Sacramento at the Capitol grounds, the gardeners who are taking care of the Capitol grounds, they were being assaulted yeah. by, by the homeless. And I mean, I know that's certainly an issue where I am in Baltimore, Maryland, where the cops always say, they're they're confronted with big problems with the general criminal population, whether they're homeless or not, because they're all on drugs now. Right. And the little common sense they might have had and the little sense of deterrent or, or of them being deterred by by, um, you know, the cops, let's say, drawing their weapons is out the window. Um, so they're caught in a catch 22 where often they have to shoot someone, but they don't want to. So therefore, they just step back and don't get involved. Um, what I wanted to go through here is, you know. A common theme of this, it's a, it's a long article, but it's worth you guys really reading every sentence of it because it's firsthand reporting. It really is. It, it mixes policy analysis with firsthand reporting. Um, and this is the stuff that policymakers should be using. But unfortunately, it's, you know, we don't have too many friends. Um, yes. You know, what I find very frustrating is when it comes to drugs, crime and homelessness. There's nothing novel about any of that. that, that that's always been around. So. It, it, it's very subtle when there's changes, but clearly, and it's hard to put an exact date on it, but a benchmark year for many of us was 2014. If you look at any chart of the drug crisis, it's like 2014, 2015, it went bonkers. It went bonkers. And to me, it's unmistakable that the last couple of years, wherever you want to put a you know timeline on it, you had Prop 47 in California, you had the Trust Act, which is the sanctuary law all converging within a few years when you have more illegal immigrants and then therefore more illegal alien criminal alien distribution networks at the primary trafficking level which by the way dea tells me in lawrence massachusetts in the southeast in atlanta 
um, they have told me that at a primary level, if they were allowed to just get rid of every every illegal alien doing drug dealing, yeah. it would make the um, availability much more scarce and the prices would go up. So when you have more of that, more sanctuaries, and then hold that thought, coupling it with putting immigration aside, just the general drugs are awesome, how dare you lock people up for that, and a lot of legislation actually codifying that sentiment, to me, it's not a surprise that we're going to take the drug crisis to the next level. And isn't it true, Heather, that once you have so many more people roped into that, you're going to have more homelessness? Absolutely right. It scares the heck out of me that we have this discourse now around normalizing drug use. Uh, and frankly, it verges on celebrating it. I have a libertarian friend, very well funded, very, very rather she's uh has many resources and is very committed to uh, marijuana legalization. That's an empirical question, whether it will reduce violence, as the libertarians claim, or increase it. But one thing that is absolutely missing from this legalization rhetoric is any public validation of temperance and sobriety. There is nothing pushing back against the idea that Drug use is without consequences, and it is something that uh, we should just celebrate. So that's spreading. You're absolutely right. Uh, and of course, the whole normalization of, of illegal entry, uh, which is a, a race to the bottom on the part of the Democratic candidates, uh, does make this whole thing much worse. It is simply astounding to me, and I know you've addressed this, Daniel, that police chiefs are so beholden uh, to their liberal mayors, to their own sense of, of self-righteous virtue signaling legitimacy, that they are not availing themselves of this extraordinarily efficient and powerful tool to clean up their streets of petty criminals by calling in the feds and saying, of course, we're going to cooperate with you. Uh, in uh, detaining somebody who's been put in jail. We will honor your detainer. Uh, and, and these police chiefs that are thumbing their nose, whether it's, whether it's uh, Johnson, Chief Johnson in Chicago, who refuses to attend uh, Trump's speech because of Chicago's sanctuary policies, or uh, LA Chief uh, 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 Michael, I can't remember his name right now, uh, uh, Michelle Moore, um, who you know takes every opportunity to denounce any hint of immigration enforcement? They are betraying the public trust, and the question remains: When is the public going to finally say enough is enough? It happened in New York in 1994 with the election of Rudolph Giuliani. Uh, California obviously has a double whammy of a uh, very progressive elite, as well as a growing. Uh, population of Hispanics that make sanity all the more difficult. But you can see the, the huge rumblings of discontent in places like San Francisco. There's been some techie, you know, tech bros who have gone on Twitter and Facebook to express their utter despair and contempt for the condition of the streets in, in extraordinarily uh, vivid and unapologetic terms. They, they've been basically drummed out of town. So you still have the tyranny of the progressive left ideology, but I, I think there may come a point 
of a tipping point when people finally say enough is enough. We have to start enforcing drug laws again. We have to increase the ability of the authorities to in, uh, commit somebody for mental illness against their will. Uh, and we're simply going to empower the police to move people along when they are taking over city streets and defecating in public, uh, throwing litter, spewing trash all over, putting people at risk. So th that's a very interesting point with the um, low-level crime, so to speak. We've chronicled on this show that I I'm right now working on a piece on the highest of highest levels. I mean, I'm talking about someone arrested on 18 counts of, of child molesting, a guy who had rape um, charges from eight different women, let out on, on $5,000 bond, and then rapes a ninth woman. I mean, there's jailbreak for the worst of the worst people, and, and that's obvious. But what you're talking about is the forgotten utility of what we all used to call broken windows policing, which was so vividly effective during the Giuliani era, which is when you start tolerating petty theft, um, obviously the antisocial behavior, the um, camping out on the city streets and the littering, well, then you get more of it. And if you get more of it, well, what do you have? You have the homeless, you have the drugs, and you get violent people. And then there's the violent crime. But I want to touch on the theft a little bit because uh, you mentioned the techies, and they're obviously going to be all very liberal. Yeah. But what I, don't, what I don't understand is this. At some point, don't their chickens come home to roost? I'm seeing a lot of data on theft and larceny increasing, petty theft increasing. I actually saw, and, and, and you know, Heather, money talks. You, you could argue over crime statistics all you want, but money is the best indicator. San Francisco off-duty cops are logging in more hours than ever because the businesses are hiring them because they could actually carry guns. Well, why the sudden rush to hire them? Because of the theft problem, no? I mean, isn't, isn't this Prop 47? Absolutely. Uh, car theft is is huge. Uh, it's leveled off a little bit recently in the last year or so in, in California, but that's after setting absolutely record highs. Uh, you hear stories about shoplifters going around with a calculator to make sure that they're shoplifting under the $950 <laughs> limit that will keep them as a misdemeanor rather than a felony theft. Uh, and yeah, it's just now viewed as a cost of doing business. You know, you can talk to Starbucks baristas uh, who, you know, every other day at the minimum in their places, the homeless come in and rip stuff off. They're all told don't do anything about it. That may be the wise uh, uh, course on the part of managers because the risk of violence is always there. Nevertheless, obviously, if this is just becomes a normal behavior, you do get more of it. You know, the, the left simply cannot understand the relationship uh, between a failure to set norms against antisocial behavior and the invitation to engage in more of that, just as they can't understand the relationship between enforcement uh, and a, a society that by and large obeys the rule of law. You know, it used to be the received wisdom in the highest policing circles that the police could do nothing about crime. The FBI used to publish an annual disclaimer along with its Uniform Crime Report National Crime Study every year, 
uh, saying, well, of course, we all know that the police can't do anything about homicide. That's a social problem. <laughs> to solve it, you know, you need to re remove racial inequalities and economic inequalities. That was this remarkable admission of 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 poverty, of inability, of of inefficacy. And but nevertheless, you had this police chief saying we can't fight crime. We cannot lower it. That all changed in New York in the 90s when it turns out that policing works. Policing works. You know, you enforce the law. People's behavior changes when you don't enforce the law. You're going to get lawlessness. It's a very simple equation. But in this article, you take it to the next level. So you say it's not just that they're not enforcing the laws. That's for sure. I mean, they're not enforcing, you know, theft across the board and drug laws, even, you know, outside the context of um, homelessness. But uh, one of the themes you hone in on is that everyone always talks about, oh, the high cost of living. Um, the high cost of housing in a place like San Francisco, as if that these people are somehow pretty much normal. They just can't afford it, and they wind up on the streets. There's another statistic in there that shocked me. You said that the city has distributed 4.5 million syringes. What, what is that? Could you describe well, that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a massive enabling industry. Uh, the city... The, an ex-police officer, police chief in San Francisco, sent me a pamphlet that the city's health department hands out on how to inject drugs allegedly safely, but really the most effectively. It is absolutely gruesome and hair-raising. Photos of how to find your vein, how to cook it, you know, how to mix it with, with uh, bleach, lemon, uh, to, to make it inject better. It is, it is utterly terrifying. There are syringe disposal boxes posted throughout the city outside of the public toilets to try and encourage these users to put their syringes so-called safely in these storage boxes rather than throwing them on the streets. Of course, most of them are still thrown on the streets, flushed down toilets, end up in gutters, uh, in, in the city's sewage. Uh, and... You know, again, you have now this parasitic industry, mostly government funded, sometimes privately funded. Not only do they hand out the paraphernalia of drug use, they also, of course, hand out blankets, free food. You can't, you know, the, 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 the carelessness with which the homeless treat food of leaving whole unopened bags that have, of, of nuts, of cookies, of pastries that have been donated to them, unopened on the street, tossing things in the gutter is unbelievable. And yet the advocates from the 80s on, on forward uh, have crafted and perfected a narrative that says this is a housing problem. It's the failure of capitalism to be able to provide housing uh, to the needy. Uh, and it has nothing to do with behavior. Now, that was false back then. It's, it's false now. There's no city that provides more affordable housing than San Francisco. But what I challenge in this article is the idea first that nobody's ever justified or explained why any given city is morally obligated to provide housing to somebody who shows up on its streets and claims homelessness. 
Why, why are taxpayers suddenly on the hook for that? Your your money or your life? You know, it's like, hey, I'll shoot you if you don't give me money. Since when was that um, part of the social compact? It's incredible. I mean, San Francisco spends almost fifty thousand a year. That's counting the most minimal expenses. That's counting on the homeless per homeless. Every every homeless person is, has about fifty thousand. That's only counting the official homeless expenditures. It leaves out welfare, it leaves out criminal justice, it leaves out health. Many a San Francisco taxpayer would be very happy to have 50,000 of services spent on him. But, But let's say somehow that just because you've brought in people from Iowa, addicts who have heard that this is a really good place to party where you won't be thrown in jail, they show up and all of a sudden, the taxpayers of San Francisco become obligated to provide you with housing, then you have no entitlement for housing in San Francisco. Wait, 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 Heather, slow, slow it down there. Wait a minute. You said something very important there. You, you're indicating that it's not just people in the area. You're saying people are coming from all over to okay. join in this camping out in San Francisco? Oh, sure. The word is out. I mean, I, I wrote a big article on Skid Row of Los Angeles, which I have to say, is the nadir. I mean, there is nothing like Skid Row. As bad as San Francisco is, Skid Row is something out of a Bosch nightmare. Uh, and I talked to people there and, and they said, yeah, the people come from the Midwest uh, because they've heard that this is such a good party scene. So, of course, there's a network just as the, the uh, you know, the, the criminals know every last subsection and, and caveat of criminal law. Uh, when Prop 47 passed, you know, I talked to some homeless people in Santa Ana Civic Center Plaza in, in California, and they knew the ins and outs of 47 to a letter. Uh, <laughs> but they also know they also know what the climate is uh, for for tolerance, and and they do come. Uh, but but in any case, what I advocate is make the provision of housing a regional responsibility because the homeless problem is is regional, people are fluid, and build shelters, build clean and sober living facilities outside of cities in abandoned, cheap industrial land. Taxpayers deserve to get the most bang for their buck. And I'm also do something in this article that is really breaking taboos and justify nimbyism. You know, this is not in my backyard when people protest having a homeless shelter built in their neighborhood. And the, the conventional line on that is, oh, these callous, uncompassionate people, how how brutal of you and how unthinking of you and petty of you to be not in my backyard. No, not in my backyard is a perfectly legitimate response. Yep. And well, what liberals sh- always try to do is they always look at the point zero zero one. But when you're dealing with public policy, you have to drive down the middle and you have to look at most people aren't mentally ill. Most people aren't criminals and you got to protect them. That's part of the social compact. So what you're saying is you're you're thinking of affirmative ways of doing it. But there's first the negative that you have to make it clear there is no camping out. So could you speak a little bit about um, this very important court case in Boise, Idaho? You know, what starts in California is increasingly migrating to Idaho. I hear it from a lot of people there, and they're like, we're not doing this. So in Idaho, they went ahead and they passed an anti-camping ordinance, and the Ninth Circuit 
and and I guess the Idaho district judge, which is that that district court is also problematic, um, said there's somehow an Eighth Amendment right to camp out on the streets. Well, actually, the district court upheld the city of, of, oh, of Boise. Okay. It was the Ninth Circuit appellate court that reversed. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is actually reinstating a previous Ninth Circuit ruling that came out of Los Angeles that, that had the same conclusion that uh, a very specious line of precedent from the 1960s about uh, whether you can criminalize so-called involuntary behavior violates the Eighth Amendment. The Ninth Circuit reached the ruling in LA that that was a violation. Uh, so what enforcing anti-camping ordinances violated the Eighth Amendment. That was settled, so that didn't become precedent. This recent Ninth Circuit decision uh, sort of exhumes the reasoning of this earlier case called Jones. This latter case, Martin v. Boise, states again something. First of all, uh, Daniel, let's notice the Eighth Amendment is only about punishment. It only says that the state, once it decides what behavior is criminal, cannot impose cruel and unusual punishments like quartering, uh, <laughs> you know, like torture, things that were still uh, in, in use, in practice yeah. in the 18th century. It does not restrict what a duly elected legislature can decide to say is behavior that is out of bounds. This, these, this line of precedent that ended, you know, has its most recent fruition with this case out of Idaho says that the Eighth Amendment, which only talks about whether you can impose, you know, hanging by, by electric shock after torture <laughs> on somebody who has shot his neighbor, actually restricts how a government can decide to, inf to govern public space. And so they've, they've ruled that unless a city is confident that at any given moment in time, if every single vagrant came off the streets miraculously and said, we want housing, which never happens and will never happen, you cannot get them off the streets. You can offer services and housing all you want, and most people turn it down. But let's say something miraculous happened. Everybody came in. If there wasn't a shelter bed for every single person living on the streets, then everybody gets a free pass and everybody gets to camp out. Uh, and that is a, a restrictive ruling that is made it even harder for cities. Now, some have been already doing that. You know, it's it's. I don't want to give these liberal governments too much of a free pass and allow them to say, oh, it's only this recent Ninth Circuit Court opinion. Otherwise, we would be so uh, careful about vindicating the rights of the law-abiding, hardworking residents of our city, but the bad Ninth Circuit make us do this. They were already pretty liberal. Oh, yeah. But this makes it even harder. And this case will be appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, Theodore Olson, who was a big, he's a big Republican uh, lawyer at the law firm of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, 
in L.A. Now he's got, you know, he's he flips back and forth. He's very bad on on immigration. He's he's recently. Oh, my gosh. He's recently uh, some other issues as well. I mean, right. The, the, um, but 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 no, this is a, this is an important case. And and look, Heather, I mean, nothing's like that same Ninth Circuit saying it's a violation of the Eighth Amendment not to castrate someone in uh, in Idaho prisons. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Someone who says I want to be castrated. Right. Idaho must pay for it. I mean, ironically, you know, some of us joke around doing it to child molesters. They would say that violates the Eighth Amendment if you right. did it. But then if you ask for it and we don't want to do it anyway, I mean, they're they're crazy. And and as Clarence Thomas says all the time, it's part of a broader problem on every clause of the Constitution that they flip in unalienable negative rights and conflate them with positive affirmative desires and privileges mm -hmm. so what's up is down what's down is up i know you got to go soon i want to just I, i'd be remiss if i didn't have you if i had you on the show and i didn't get a little bit just into the general crime issues um there is an onslaught i have never seen anything like this in my career and i cover a lot of different issues where there is a one-sided fight at the um elite level um, whether it's the politicians, every single Republican I know of in Washington, except for a few, whether it's at a media level where Fox News, for the first time in their entire history, put out a press release endorsing a piece of legislation, they endorsed the First Step Act. Um, there is this maniacal, frenetic desire to lower the prison population at all costs one of the things they're doing in your state effective january 1st i want to get your take on this so they're essentially abolishing cash bail for for a good chunk of crimes and then at the same time they're forcing disclosure that the prosecutor give over to, to the defendant all of the information about witnesses their statements including grand jury statements while they're out, so the two provisions brilliantly work together. I just, I was just looking at a case in Alaska where, again, this guy who was arrested for the ninth rape while he was out on bail. The whole issue was the women were scared to testify, and he was out. I, we had uh, Sandra Dorley, the Monroe County uh, prosecutor from Rochester, on, and she, I didn't know this, but I asked her. What are the, some of the biggest impediments to landing a conviction? Why is it that they always plead down and you always seem to have to accept it? And she said, it's witnesses. We can't get them because they're scared. I didn't realize how much of a problem it is. What do you think of this New York law? Is it designed to ensure that there's more of this ple pleading down? Well, first of all, the witness non-cooperation is, is in part the fear of cooperation but it's also the no snitch ethic uh, among these gangbangers that hate the police so much that they simply refuse to cooperate uh, because I don't know how scared they really are. They're going around carrying drugs and shooting each other, carrying guns rather than shooting each other up. So it's two things, but but certainly the witness intimidation is, is a big one. Uh, I, I just think that the issue that I brought up at the at the beginning of our conversation, Daniel, which is the disparate impact, uh, the fact that any, virtually any law or norm uh, that is enforced is going to fall disproportionately on blacks uh, to the greatest extent, to a certain lesser extent on Hispanics because of family breakdown and because of enormously higher rates of criminality across the board, whether yeah. it's 
low-level crimes or high-level crimes, I mean, we're talking about a homicide rate that is about 10 to 1 uh, blacks to whites. Uh, you know, that that is astounding, and the public has been kept completely in the dark about that. And so that disparate impact analysis, which says that any type of enforcement that results in the disproportionate representation of blacks in prison, a disproportion that is driven exclusively by crime rates, that that's something the left will not accept, that any enforcement must be rolled back. And well, you say the left, Heather, but where I sit, it's well, awfully yes. lonely. <laughs> right. Well, please, you left President Trump out of that. I mean, he is so <laughs> opportunistic, so without principles that he has completely jumped on the left's bandwagon and claiming that uh, rational sentencing policies are racist. It's appalling. You know, we learned in the Obama era and, the, and when we had a, a uh, president who invited Black Lives Matter activists into the White House, who took every opportunity to further this false narrative that the criminal justice system is systemically racist and only racism explains the overrepresentation of blacks in prison. We learned that rhetoric matters, and Trump hasn't been as bad for for sure. And sure. Sessions was fabulous. Nevertheless, for him to start demagoguing against Joe Biden for having signed the 1994 federal crime control bill is really appalling. I uh, couldn't believe it. At one of the debates, the RNC puts out a. A press release. I don't know if you saw that. I did an article on it, uh, hitting Kamala Harris from the left. Uh -huh. Like, yeah, you know, you, you you actually enforced the law back in the day. I mean, since when did this happen? And yeah, we've hit the president on this because the president used to say what you and I are saying. I we actually have the tweets where he said it. He said, "Look, they they commit an overwhelming amount of crime. People don't want to talk about it." But what I've seen from the data, and I and I know you've done extensive research on this. It's in your book. It's in a lot of your City Journal articles we're going to try to link to in our show notes. But what I've seen, um, and we'll link to this article, how can incarceration rates be racist if they reflect actual crime rates? What 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 the prison population seems to suggest from what I've seen is that if anything, there might be an under incarceration uh, problem, particularly among blacks, because they like to blame it on drug laws. But if you look at the uniform crime reporting, while they do commit um, drug crimes at a higher level than their share of the pie, it's 12, 13 percent of the population, it's nowhere near the share of robberies, murder and assaults. So what I found is that if you would take out every single drug trafficker from prison, their share of the composition of the prison population would not go down because isn't it largely the big four crimes that are driving it? Yeah, absolutely. The black prison population, when you take federal and uh, state prisons into account, is about 37.6%. You take out all drug prisoners from all federal and state prisoners, prisons, and the, and the black population goes down from like 37.6 to 37.4%. So in other words, this narrative that the disproportion is all driven by drug enforcement is completely false. And yes, about over 50% of all prisoners are there for violent crime over another quarter is due to uh, to uh, property crime. 
The drug crimes that are there are overwhelmingly for trafficking. Nobody, zero, minus zero, are in any sort of prison or jail for smoking a joint. It does not happen. Uh, and yet that is the major excuse. And, you know, we talked briefly about broken windows enforcement, uh, and I would include uh, enforcement of, say, public drug use. The, the people who are begging for that type of enforcement are law-abiding blacks and Hispanics who see what it is like to live in a disorderly environment. They are terrified of those groups of rowdy youth that are hanging out on street corners fighting because they know that out of that street disorder comes violence. There was a, a girl in Chicago, 12-year-old girl who was shot to death by a 19-year-old marijuana dealer. Again, we're supposed to believe that marijuana is such a pacific enterprise, whether it's dealing or using. Uh, he was shooting at rivals, you know, wildly shooting uh, across the street and killed this young girl, Takiya Holmes. Uh, the, the people that live with the open-air drug trade understand this, and they want that type of enforcement. No, ab absolutely. I've seen it here in Baltimore, too, where we've had crime waves and we have these, you know, neighborhood meetings and and uh, town halls. And, and there's a number of black individuals who show up. They're a little bit older, usually yeah. um, gray hair, and they're very concerned about that. And and those are the people that are obviously hurt the most. I mean, I see it every day here. It, it's not in my neighborhood where you're going to see the dead bodies. Now, we do have the car break-ins and, and, and all these problems since Freddie Gray, but the body count in Baltimore is almost every single person is black. Yeah. And yeah. speaking of Baltimore, um, I'll let you go after this. I know your, your time is short, um, but I got to discuss the war on cops. Um, so I want our listeners to take a look at this video here from the Baltimore Fraternal Order of Police they put out on Twitter. Is it my imagination or does it seem that the war on cops has gotten worse since you wrote that book three years ago? Well, you know, it's it's been bad for a long time. I talked to a federal black federal marshal who was trying to arrest a fugitive felon in the North Bronx and he got out of his car and was immediately surrounded by about two dozen people cursing at him. Somebody picked up a, a pike, uh, threatened to kill him. He only got out by calling for backup. So since the Black Lives Matter movement, things have gotten worse since the Michael Brown shooting. But frankly, you know, in New York, we have the, the practice of airmail, which is 
trash, bot bags of urine, feces, uh, sanitary napkins thrown off of cops from the roofs of housing projects. That's been going on since the 1960s and 70s. I can't say whether things are getting worse, but things are very bad. I, I say that, Heather, because um, the the number of suicides among cops has doubled this year over recent years. So I was just wondering if some of this is is playing a role. Um, you know, I just saw and I forget him. I'm, I'm really not doing justice because I had trouble pronouncing his name. Even when I remembered it, it starts with an L. The cop who last Friday um, was hit over the head with a metal chair from someone who came behind him. He was put in a medically induced coma. He thankfully came out of the hospital and unbelievably, while he was hit over the head with something that swelled up his brain, he managed to draw his weapon and and kill the guy, which I just thought was was amazing how how a guy could do that. He almost died from it. Um, but yet I, I, I look at the, the media and some of the quotes from the state legislators of that area and they think it's an unjustifiable shooting. I well, mean, to me, that that goes hand in hand with what I'm wondering is the increased, you know, suicidal tendencies among some of them that they're getting placed in very tough situations. It's it's odd because, you know, the Black Lives Matter narrative has been somewhat displaced from national attention, which is now focused exclusively on getting Trump out of office. So the sort of constant drumbeat, the saying the cops are racist has gone down in the media since the Obama years. And yet it seems like we have set this poison in motion and it is spreading without the same level of gasoline being poured on it by, uh, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but <laughs> but uh, a fire that's sure. burning, uh, from the national media. It's, it's going on now sort of at the local level from the prosecutors that are decriminalizing that are claiming constantly that the racist, the criminal justice system is racist. And yes, yeah. we are, you, 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 you denigrate law enforcement, you, you delegitimate it, and you are absolutely putting something that Americans are far too sanguine about, which is the rule of law at risk. You know, the normal, the normal human condition is tribalism. It is hatred. It is violence. It is, corruption. It is the effort to destroy anybody seen as the other. And we have managed to tame that beast pretty well over our history. But between the demonization of cops, the absolute blank slate that Antifa gets, we really are playing with fire. And, yeah. you know, it could get worse. Maybe it will not. But it could be it could take us into a situation that Americans are utterly ignorant and naive about. And that's the thing. I don't want to wait until it gets back to the 80s. I want to start throwing the red flag now, especially when it's not like they're stopping. I mean, they're just getting started. And, and you're right. Um, you know, Trump screwed us on one issue on the remaining part of this portfolio. I mean, Barr is giving some good speeches. Certainly the DOJ is not going to be um, pressing on cops under this administration. But every cop who serves in a major um police organization, by definition, they're going to be in big blue areas. Those are the toughest areas. And the politics of all of those cities have become so extreme that whether it's the judges, even now some of the prosecutors elected by Soros, um, and then certainly the politicians and the media, 
my concern is that it's getting even worse over time. And then to add to that, some of our colleagues and donors of some of these organizations at a time where we need to back the blue more than ever, they're saying, oh, no, we're arresting too many people as if it's still 1998. They've learned nothing. They haven't watched the trajectory of the last five, eight, 10 years, even in some places. Um, any parting thoughts before we let you go? Well, I would just add police chiefs to that. Uh, police chiefs are cowards. And again, it is the politics. It's the left wingery. It's the it's the demographic transformation that's going on. The they are complicitous in the public's ignorance about why police officers are in certain neighborhoods. I gave a talk uh, in a southern city to a bunch of people in law enforcement, prosecutors, local DAs, federal prosecutors, and the city's police chief. I'm not going to name him. He's gone on to another very big position. And I was telling the statistics about black crime. And afterwards, he said to me, yeah, I know those statistics. Well, why doesn't he talk about them? You know, he's now gone on to a very highly pressed position in a city that is absolutely racked with homicides. And the police chiefs are willing to let their cops twist in the wind of public hatred, take a completely specious charge of racism for simply going to try to protect people where the crime is highest because the, the police chiefs will not educate the public about how bad things are in inner cities. And that does create stress. We are asking the police in our country to live with knowledge of a reality of the savagery that can happen in these inner city areas without fathers that the public turns its eyes away from. And to bear that knowledge and not be able to talk about it is extraordinarily stressful. And I think that is also contributing to the suicides that we're seeing. Yep. And, and, and there you have it. I mean, we've had on a typical year, what, seven, eight thousand black homicide victims and something like in a given year, 15, 16, 17 um, blacks killed by police. And that's not even accounting for whether they were justified or not. And nobody discussed. That's yeah, I mean, unheard. I'm sure you have the numbers, but it's it's something like point zero zero one percent. And there's no focus on this. I mean, Heather, I thank you so much for yes. your very generous time, almost you know, 45 minutes here. But it was needed. I feel alone. I feel alone in this battle. I lost a four year battle at the federal level. And that's, as we say, the first step. There are many more steps to dismantling criminal justice. And I know you're going to be there with us to help fight this until next time. Thank you guys for listening. Send me your questions for Heather. I could ask her offline. Subscribe to our YouTube page. Till tomorrow, God bless you all.